This week on Writers Inc. I used to be really good at just getting down to it. You know, when I had a day job and really small kids, I would seize any tiny sliver of time that I had and just get the words out. And one of the great luxuries of my life now is that I'm a full-time writer, which is amazing. Um, but my productivity seems to have gone down with it. And I find now I have to have like a certain amount of sort of faffing around every day before I can kind of work myself into the, the sort of the mentality of getting words on the page. So I like to think that I sit down at my desk every morning and start work. But the truth is, you know, I have to answer my social media messages, do my emails, maybe do a bit of tax, you know, order some things for my upcoming tour so yeah I'm definitely I'm I'm a procrastinator like the rest of us but I think one of the things that I took from that conversation was how comforting other people found it to find that they weren't the only people so I think there's a lot of us out there and uh, you are my tribe and uh, we are much more efficient than we look. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, we don't have that uh, annoying third voice this week. No, not no. We're not allowed to mention NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> I think Let's Jay. See. I think Jay's living on the blockchain now. I think he is an NFT. He, he uploaded his <laughs> his consciousness onto the blockchain. <laughs> I, I could see him doing that if it was possible. Oh man, no, what do you Jay mean? Jay is out, and uh, I think he's actually as we record. I think he's on his way back, but he's been a. Uh, out in California, as they say, um, at doing at some sort of uh, Web three cryptocurrency sort of thing. He's probably gonna cringe at me for the way I talk about this, like I know what I'm talking about or something. But <laughs> he's like, out like, doing like something, a like a betweeny episode with Joanna Penn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know enough yeah. about this stuff. Yeah, so don't guys, don't be surprised if Writers Inc. is an NFT next week. So after, after, after Jay comes back, (laughs) I've been kind of struggling with a tech issue and it's not NFT related, but do you work on a Mac or a PC? A Mac, the PC guy, he's gone. He's, that's the one who's in, in California right now. Gotcha. Okay. So I've got this top secret project that I'm working on that we were just kind of talking about off the air. Um, I've got tons of audio and video files that I recorded back in 2009, 2010, and I've got them backed up onto an old school hard drive that I pulled out of a computer. Um, So I'm trying to get those into the 21st century. Um, So I I bought one of those adapters where you can just take a, a, it's a SCSI drive. You can plug the SCSI drive into this giant box and, you know, plug the USB into your computer and you can read the files. Um, And then I bought a, a two terabyte little USB drive. Which is amazing because, like, now you know, you can hang two terabytes on your keychain without any problem. In 2009, like, that was impossible. Um, it's about one terabyte worth of data. Um, but when I try to copy it from the one, the old drive to the new drive, I basically get an error message on my Mac saying that I don't have enough space available because my Mac itself doesn't have enough space. So apparently, like, when it copies the files, it's got to copy them all to the Mac first, or you know, like, somehow there has to be enough room on the computer in order to get it from, you know, point A to point C. 
Um, I'm trying to find a way around that without having to go like file by file, you know, like grabbing four or five of them at a time. And I just kind of want to just copy the whole thing. But I was just curious if you ever run into that or know of a way around it. I'm guessing people that work with like large video files probably deal with that sort of thing all the time. Yeah, I, I don't ever deal with that much data at a time, so I've never run into that. But um, there's got to be some sort of solution out there for that. I would think. I mean, like I know on a PC it would work. Um, so I might hit yeah. like the FedEx, local FedEx Kinkos or something and just do it there just to, to be done with it. Because um, the other thing I'm worried about is like all this data is, you know, like it, this project is like really heating up and all of it hinges on this data. And this drive <sighs> is, you know, from 2009, you know, <laughs> a hard drive. Like I'm honestly surprised it even worked when I plugged it in. So like I'm scared to like even, you know, read the data off of it because I don't know how much life it's got left in it. Yeah, I don't, that sounds like like knowing what what you're dealing with and and what this project is and stuff. You might want to get like I was gonna say, you know, if, if anyone in our audience is a Mac person, no solution, hit us up. I mean, it's obviously gonna be a few days from now, but this almost sounds like something you might want to go somewhere and have professionally done. <laughs> yeah, be, before I screw it up. <laughs> yeah, because that would that would that would suck really bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else is going on? I just finished the, the Jeffrey Dahmer story on Netflix. Have you watched this yet? I haven't. I've thought about starting it, um, but, but I, but I haven't watched it yet. They, they did a phenomenal job. Um, cause obviously, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer is not a likable person in, in any way whatsoever. Um, but they do make you relate to him in a, in a certain way. Um, you know, you know, you don't, you don't feel bad for him or anything, but you do kind of understand the struggle that's going on in his head, um, and why he did the things that he did. And like the way that they did that to me was just amazing to be able to tell that kind of story because this guy is the monster of all monsters. He's probably yeah. the worst of all the serial killers. Um, and they made him in a lot of ways seem human, um, but very, you know, extremely flawed. Um, I just started listening, uh, watching uh, the net, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, which is another thing on Netflix. Cause now I'm on this Dahmer kick. Um, but they're actually playing the recordings that they took um, between him and his attorney. I think it was um, just to see how close they, they actually followed when they did this, the scripted show. Uh, Cause you know, from what I've been reading, they took a lot of liberties, which, you know, I, I didn't realize they could actually do, but in something like that, I mean, if they're, you know, basically acting out court transcripts, like you'd think that they would, you know, basically, you know, covered hundred percent exactly the way that it played out in court. Um, but apparently they didn't like they're, they're overacting or they're changing things around, um, mixing some of the victims, you know, combining people, things like that. And, you know, you do that with fiction, but I don't, I don't think you can really get away with it with something like this. So I, I'm just curious if that's what's really going on or if it's just people in the news, you know, complaining about it, but either way, it's, it's, it's very, very well done from a character development standpoint. Yeah, I had heard, and, and maybe what you just said was part of it. I mean, and I didn't read, I, someone told me that, uh, that I guess the families of the victims and stuff were pretty, were kind of upset about this, which is understandable. I mean, I'm sure they're upset when anything comes out. And maybe that's part of what you said. And, and that's kind of like, I don't know, like him being, they're making them relatable and stuff. I think that's also part of why, like, I get why they would do that. And I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, but I, don't know, I think there's like, a, I have a weird thing about watching stuff like that because I'm like, and I don't know, like, am I sensationalizing this by supporting? I, I remember like um, when when we did the the first authors on a train, me and Jay and Joanna Penn and Lindsay Broker. I remember Joanna really wanted to, wanted to go to the Museum of Death in New Orleans because anyone who knows Joanna, of course, she did. But we didn't read. We thought it was going to be like the history of death and stuff. We didn't realize it was like serial killer memorabilia, like real letters from John Wayne Gacy and stuff. And like we left. I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I, but I, I think everyone kind of felt the same. Like I left feeling kind of icky. Like I just bought a ticket to that. Like I kind of sensationalized us. I don't know. I kind of feel the same way with this. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but, uh, 
I don't know. It's just a weird personal thing, I guess. I think times have just changed, you know, like back, um, like I, I grew up in Florida and, you know, Ted Bundy was a big thing back when I was in high school because he was executed, I think in my junior or senior year. Um, and you know, he was larger than life, you know, by the, by the end, they, they talked about him constantly. Um, but in now, you know, in today's world, a lot of times if, you know, there's a mass shooting or anything like that, they, they purposely avoid even saying the person's name on television in a lot of cases. And I honestly, I think that's the way to go. Me too. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm watching something like this more from a research standpoint, you know, I'm thinking about diving back into the, my, my serial killer series and you know yeah. if, if i can get some new intel it, it would be worthwhile um but it, it's difficult to stomach and and they did those parts too i mean they they you know they, they didn't shy away from anything which i thought was good um speaking of amazon uh do you know anybody who uses amazon marketing services i think we talked about this briefly on the air but this is um basically amazon running your ad program rather than you going in there as an author and doing it on your own so you're okay. So, cause I know Amazon marketing services is the, like anyone can go and like advertise on that platform, obviously, but you're talking about like, Oh, it's the, the one, other the, one, the high tier one where yeah. they, you have someone running them for. Yeah. Um, I don't actually, um, not anyone that I know for sure is doing it. Um, uh, so I, I know you, I know you were, you were talking yeah, about no, it. I, I just, I, I want to put the call out there. If anybody that's listening is actually using that, the higher tier program, it's a $10,000 a month buy-in, um, five month minimum. So it's pretty pricey. But if there's anybody that listens to the show that actually does this, I'd love to hear from you just to see what your, your experience was or is. Um, I've talked to two people already and they both had positive things to say about it. And I'm you know, on the fence about doing it. I think I probably will with the next book. Um, so I'm just trying to line that up. I had a call with my Facebook rep uh, yesterday. Um, I've got a, a, an Amazon Facebook rep assigned to my ad account. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm still, I'm seeing a lot of things that are discouraging to me. Um, every time I go into edit an ad, I get an error message saying that, you know, some of the audiences that I had targeted before are no longer available and I've got to take them out of my target group before they'll publish the ad. Um, you know, so I'm targeting a you know particular author's name or something like that. And that group is no longer available. So the people I can target that, that audience is shrinking. Um, and the other thing my rep brought up is they, they feel that they want to see more video, you know, like most of my ads are, are static. Um, you know, and I think they're just, you know, they're trying to chase, you know, Instagram stories or trying to chase TikTok. Um, but you know, if they're pushing me for video in my ads, that means they're pushing everybody that they're talking to for video in their ads. Um, and you know, I, 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 I can do that, you know, but obviously that's something, you know, there's a budget involved. You can't just shoot a video, you know, unless you're, you know, really know what you're doing for the most part. Most authors, I think are going to have to go out there and hire somebody to put something together. Um, so I'm not quite sure what that's going to do if it, but it's, it's obviously a shift that's happening. If Facebook is pushing people to do that, you know, you're going to see it more and more. And I, I don't go on Facebook and I know you don't either. So like, I don't know how much of that is showing up in people's feeds, uh, but it's definitely trending that way. I, I did talk recently to, um, an author buddy of mine who, um, is, is in your genre actually, uh, but, but is indie. Um, and it has spent a ton of money on Facebook ads because this person is, um, uh, really close or is approaching seven figures, um, as an indie and, uh, and said that like the Facebook has pretty much dropped off for them <laughs> and, and, and they're really not putting a bunch of money into it anymore and putting most of their money into AMS ads. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'm with you. I don't go on there. So it's kind of hard to tell. Well, yeah, honestly, so. what I'm, when I'm thinking, I was talking to my wife about this last night, you know, I've got through best of book talk, I've got almost, almost 3000 book, uh, influencers on TikTok, basically on our mailing list. I'm thinking about going out to that group and creating a contest and pay somebody, you know, a thousand dollars, $5,000, something for like the, you know, whoever can create the, the most viral ad, you know, of that group 
uh, for one of my books just to see what they come up with. You know, I don't mind paying somebody a couple thousand dollars if they, you know, get a hundred thousand hits on TikTok or whatever, particularly yeah. if I could use that video, you know, and other things, because now we've got somebody professional actually making it. Um, if I can grab that video and then use it on Facebook and the other services that that might be worthwhile. So I'm, I'm thinking about something like that. Right on. Well, it sounds like you, uh, have 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 a lot of stuff going on, um, different from me, but uh, but but I've been I've been in a similar boat last week. Um, as I mentioned on the podcast last week, I had a uh, I had a guest in town this past for about four days. My buddy uh, T W Piperbrook, who was like an early guest on the show, um, he came and man, it was awesome. Like I forgot how much um, we did a lot of just hanging out, but we also worked while he was here. Like we went inside a coffee shop, um, we went and took a couple of long walks and just. Um, like talked out some stuff in our businesses. And I forgot how great it is to have that time with someone else who is a friend, but also, I mean, he writes in the same genre I do. He writes post apoc um, and to just be able to like talk out, st- we talked out plot stuff. We talked out businesses. He's, he's crushed it with audiobooks, So I was able to really pick his brain on that stuff. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I hadn't done that in a while and I just forgot how beneficial it is. Uh, and recharging to have someone to be able to in person to be able to talk about that stuff with. It's funny that you brought that up because I was thinking about this yesterday. Like very few of my actual friends that I talk to on a regular basis are are writers. You know, like yeah. a lot of the people that I hang out with locally, like they've all got regular jobs. Like my best friend drives a truck for Publix down in Florida, you know, delivering groceries. Um, the other one is, you know, mows lawns for a living, like they, you know, totally outside. So like, I can't talk to them about any of this stuff because, you know, they either don't understand it or they don't care or, you know, it's a, just a weird conversation to have. Um, it, it, and it, it is fun to, they, like it recharges your batteries when you can sit down and talk to writers, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, like I like going to conferences, you know, yeah. because now all of a sudden you're surrounded by, by those types of people. Um, yeah, it, it was awesome. I mean, we had a really good balance of like work and, you know, hanging out, going and having some good food. We went and saw Smashing Pumpkins and Jane's Addiction Monday night, which is a really, really good show. Um, so it was it, it was really, really energizing. So it, I, I, it was awesome. But cool. uh, yeah, but I, I do have to ask for before we uh, jump jump into uh, our, our business and the interview. I'm, how's, how's the dog doing? Astro. Astro is actually doing really well. Um, it's weird because you can see them pushing updates. Like if I go into the app, I, I, I purposely keep track of the, the firmware number that's on there just to see how often they're doing it. Um, it's pretty seamless from the user standpoint. So if you don't look, you, you don't see it. Um, I haven't had to pick him up and like put him on his base once. Like he hasn't gotten stuck. Um, oh, he always cool. finds, yeah, he finds his way back to his charger. Um, they did something, pushed an update, I guess in the last day or two where, you know, I, I had mentioned that I've got a ring alarm system. So every door in the house, every window, everything is tied to it. Um, now if somebody opens up a door, he goes running over there. Um, to, and same thing with the window. So anything with a sensor, like all of a sudden he knows where in the house it, it actually is. Um, which is kind of neat. I mean, cause again, he's acting like a real dog. My daughter comes home from school and the dog comes running down the hallway to, to greet her and barks at the, the landing at the mudroom. Um, which is freaky and, and cool all at the same time. The one thing that really throws me about him though, is like, I, I think of him as a him, as a he, um, you know, <laughs> That's my, interesting. My, my dog's got gender issues. Um, <laughs> but, but when he, when he speaks, he speaks with Alexa's voice, um, because you know, the two are integrated. So it, it's got a lot of dog habits, but then if you ask it a particular question, it taps into Alexa to, to answer. Um, or if you're using the screen on the dog for video conferencing or playing music, all those things are done through, you know, an Amazon echo type device. Um, and for me, it, it kind 
kind of ruins the illusion, you know, because it does feel like a real dog. Like yeah. if you have two people having a conversation in a room and it's, you know, sitting in that room with you, its eyes actually bounce back and forth while the people are talking as if it's watching you. Like it, it is crazy how realistic it is until you hear that Alexa voice come out of it. And that to me ruins it. Um, but it's, I mean, I am amazed, you know, considering that this is the first iteration coming out. Like I just, I can't believe where it's at now. And like, I'm really excited to see where it goes. You need to do the thing you can do on their other devices where you can change its voice to Samuel L. Jackson. I tried. <laughs> oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got a, it's got a separate app, and like, there's no way to actually do it on there. I, I would no, love to change it. You'll be able to eventually, I bet. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that that's coming. Um, you know, a lot a lot of little things. I mean, they're getting feedback from everybody that's basically got them right now. Um, so I'm sure we're going to see. You know, like I'm already seeing updates happening a couple times a week. I'm sure those kind of things will roll out pretty fast. And I know the voice thing is is really just something everybody's complaining about. You guys should also open three doors at the same time and see which one he goes to. <laughs> the, the funny the funniest part is we've got reminders set up for my daughter's bedtime um so like every alexa in our house goes it's time for bed for ember um all at the same time and like and the dog does it too but the dog actually tries to find you and it looks like this frantic animal like running around the house you know trying to because it, it just wants to find a person it doesn't care who it is and like it just starts zipping up and down the hallways in and out of every room just looking for anybody and then when it finds you know me like it, it says found data on the screen or found mama on the screen depending on who it it finds and then like the the reminder actually pops up on the screen and you have to tell it that you you know to, to turn it off um, but like it's the funniest thing because it looks like almost like you're you know you've got a dog that's just hungry and like you know it knows it's dinner time like it's just it's zipping all over over the place. Now I really wish it had Samuel Jackson voice so it'd walk up that to your would, daughter and be like, it's your mother ass to bed right now. <laughs> that, that would be the best. I would program that in a heartbeat if that was available. <laughs> All right. Well, before we jump into our interview, um, let's take care of some business. And we, of course, want to uh, remind you about our awesome friends over at Kobo Riding Life. Um, of course, Tara and her team are continuing to do awesome things over there for authors. And uh, Kobo empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands with simple tools to publish and promote your books worldwide. Set your price, keep all your rights, and take advantage of monthly promotional opportunities. And you can do all this without any exclusivity agreements. Get started today over at KoboWritingLife.com. And with that, JD, who do we have this week? All right, this one's going to be fun. We've got Ruth Ware. Um, she's the international number one bestseller of, of numerous thrillers, including Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, The Lion Game, Death of Miss Westaway, uh, Turn of the Key. Um, her latest, it's called The It Girl, and it released this summer. Here she is, Ruth Ware. I think I can honestly say you're our first member of the royal family to be on the show. Congratulations. <laughs> Queen Ruth, I like it. I'm going to adopt that now. It's going to be my new Twitter handle. The Queen of Crime, right? <laughs> Where's my crown? Obviously, I'm wearing it. Listeners can't see. So, <laughs> oh, I'm so excited uh, to have you on the show. And um, we're not here to talk about the royal family. You have a, a new book called The It Girl. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, well, it's um, it's kind of dark academia, I guess. 
Um, it's uh, about my main character is a bookseller, Hannah, and she's living in uh, present day Edinburgh with her husband, Will. She's expecting their baby. Everything is kind of uh, peaceful and tranquil. Um, and out of the blue, she hears that um, this guy, John Neville, has died um, and it rocks her world because John Neville was convicted of the murder of Hannah's college roommate, largely on Hannah's evidence. Um, and on the face of it, this should be good news. It should enable Hannah to close a really painful chapter of her life and move on. But instead, what happens is Hannah is forced to the realisation that actually there are questions that she's never been completely happy with about Neville's conviction. Um, and it forces her to reappraise some of the things that she's been taking for granted and also pushing away for more than 10 years. Um, so the book is told in alternate chapters between before and after, flashing back and forth between Hannah's present day life and her past um, at Oxford University, where she meets the beautiful, wealthy, enigmatic April. Um, and things go very, very wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Deliciously wrong, it sounds like. Uh, I, I know that you say, um, you know, a lot of your characters are not really you, but a bookseller, that sounds like it hits close, closer to home. Um, I guess, yeah, there's a couple of elements that um, definitely draw my own sort of experience with Hannah's life. I, I was a bookseller, although uh, not for very long and um, definitely not as professional as Hannah is. She's a career bookseller who understands the trade really well. I was never really more than a glorified sort of Saturday girl who helped out around the shop. Um, so but definitely like, you know, it was a trade that I knew well. I didn't have to do too much research. And I think all of us, you know, writers and readers can um, empathise with that feeling of finding sanctuary in a bookshop, which is definitely something that Hannah has done. You know, she's had a really tough time. Uh, she's had to drop out of college. Um, she's run as far and as hard as she can from her college experience without actually ending up in a, a completely different um, place. Um, and she's found sanctuary in the kind of the independent bookshop of my dreams uh which is what I gave her as compensation for everything else that I put her through um and the other thing is that she's uh, expecting her first child which um definitely for me was like one of the big sort of turning points in my life like, you know one was leaving home going to university finding out my identity as an independent person and the other big turning point was the sort of the the, the other the flip side of that um, going from having complete autonomy to uh, having a baby <laughs> it was quite a shock to the system. So I guess Hannah's life is being bookended by those two things. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to come back to to that as well. Uh, but um, you you seem to create characters that are very real and very vulnerable. And it's not surprising because it seems as though that's how you are as well. You're, you're, you're on your social media, on your website, you're, you're sort of very open about the challenges you face and the obstacles that you encounter. Uh, and, and one term that um, I, I know what this is, but I have to ask for the listener, what is faffing around? <laughs> okay so this comes from a Twitter conversation I've been having over the last few days I guess it's like I didn't realize it was a British term that's the funny thing about um you know I, I'm very aware of what Americanisms are and I, I'd like to think as Brits we're pretty bilingual because we you know we tend to grow up on a lot of American TV so I very rarely encounter terms in American books where I have to look them up um 
although I wasn't sure for years what a Twinkie was. I only discovered <laughs> that in my 20s. I have this idea of this like magical substance. But the other, I'm not so clear on the other way. So it always trips me up when people are like, what does that mean? Uh, so faffing around is like, I guess it's like sort of messing around or futzing around or just wasting time. Uh, and I, I've been having a Twitter conversation about the fact that um I used to be really good at just getting down to it you know when I had a day job and really small kids I would seize any tiny sliver of time that I had and just get the words out and one of the great luxuries of my life now is that I'm a full-time writer which is amazing um but my productivity seems to have gone down with it and I find now I have to have like a certain amount of sort of faffing around every day before I can kind of work myself into the the sort of the mentality of getting words on the page so I like to think that I sit down at my desk every morning and start work but the truth is you know I have to answer my social media messages, do my emails, maybe do a bit of tax, you know, order some things for my upcoming tour. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a procrastinator like the rest of us. But I think one of the things that I took from that conversation was how comforting other people found it to find that they weren't the only people. So I think there's a lot of us out there and uh, you are my tribe and uh, we are much more efficient than we look. So <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, the the paradox of becoming a full-time creative and feeling as though it's harder to get the work done than it was when your life was full of respon- other responsibilities. Why do you think that's the case? Um, I think very pragmatically, it's not really harder to get the work done. It, in nine times out of 10, it's easier because I'm not juggling responsibilities and you know time management and ultimately that was why I gave up my day job because there just were not enough hours in the day Um, but I think on a really pragmatic level my imagination only refills so fast and when I was working and had small kids I was writing a book a year and when I gave up my day job I thought oh my gosh you know I'm gonna have so much time I'll be able to write two three books a year the truth is I I didn't my imagination seems to run at about a book a year it takes me that long to come up with plots with ideas with characters and having more time to physically get the words onto the page doesn't help with the other stuff which is just coming up with good ideas so what I found when I was working in the office was that my most productive writing days were usually the ones immediately after I had been working because I came back to the desk and I was just brimming with ideas and I had all this enthusiasm Um, and obviously my subconscious had been working all the time that I was you know away from away from my computer and solving all of these plot problems and therefore when I came back to the desk I was suddenly you know able to get it all out and so now I think really what I'm doing when I when I faff is I'm replacing that that time that I was spending doing work for other people I need that subconscious kind of gnawing time for my for my subconscious to just get to work on all of the plot problems all of the things that I'm not quite sure how to solve and often after a certain number of hours of doing other stuff I'll suddenly have an idea and I'll know how to solve it but a really interesting thing is that I didn't write a book last year it was the first year in probably a decade when I didn't write a book 
Um, and it was because of COVID, because I was homeschooling my kids. I had a house full of, you know, people. It was, I just had no time at all to work. Um, but The It Girl was one of the fastest books to write in a really long time. And I think it's because I had that year when I wasn't, wasn't consciously thinking about the plot, but obviously it was bubbling away and knots were untying themselves. And I was thinking about things, even if I didn't realize it. So yeah, it all comes good in the end. <laughs> I love that. Do you feel as though you have to create the, the time for your subconscious to process that? Or do you feel like it's going to happen regardless? Um, I think it just, uh, yeah, I don't know if I create the time for my subconscious to process stuff. It's more just that I write until I run out of material and I'm experienced enough now to know that I just have to wait for the, for the thing, you know, if I've run, if I've run up against a halt, then there's not usually a shortcut apart from just waiting for the knots to sort themselves out. And that doesn't often mean long, you know, it can just mean going for a walk or doing something else or, you know, watching a film, um, but doing something that's kind of absorbing but doesn't use the same parts of my brain that writing does, I think it is, is the quickest way usually to, to solve the problem. Going for a walk is a really good one because it it doesn't absorb your imagination too much. So, yeah. That one's scientifically proven. Walking is a great thing to do for creatives. Absolutely. Yeah. On uh, in part of your bio, um, you ha you have this statement. You said, and I realized that unless I did something drastic, I was going to find my writing time whittled down further and further until it likely disappeared altogether. What was that drastic measure you took? Um, basically, I just <laughs> womaned up and uh, and 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 treated my writing as a potential source of income so the, the the trigger for all this was I had been writing for years and years um but I had been doing it largely to please myself I'd never sent anything much out for publication never tried to find an agent never written with a view to the market um and then I had two kids um and that was where that statement came from it was that realization that I had so little time you know I didn't I wasn't going to the gym I wasn't getting my hair cut I wasn't doing anything apart from just trying to hold all the threads of our kind of domestic life together um, and I realized that the only way I was going to be able to keep writing was to make it pay its own way to the extent that I could afford to cut back on my day job um, and at that point I thought I have to try and get something published um, this was on maternity leave um, or I'm simply not going to be able to do any kind of writing when I get back to work because I just won't have the time um, so it it sort of pushed me over the over the hump of I think I'd been always been uh, maybe a bit too scared before that um, I don't like failing at stuff. I don't like being rejected. Nobody does, but I have, think I have a particularly low tolerance for it. Um, and there had always been that, oh, well, you know, what if people laugh at me? What if they hate my books? Um, that had kind of stopped me from sending work out before that. But ha the threat of having it taken away was what made me think, no, I can, I can deal with this after all. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Did you give yourself an ultimatum? No, but I think I had one anyway, because um, I was very lucky at the time the UK gave, um, well, mothers um, a 
year off, a year, a year of maternity leave, um, of which my company paid quite a substantial chunk and I had enough saved up to, to cover some more time. So I had pretty much a year um, and I knew that once that was up, that that would be it. I wouldn't have another substantial chunk of time off work ever, probably <laughs> at least until my kids left home. Um, so, yeah, so it, it was a, it wasn't my deadline, but the universe sort of gave me a deadline. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, if, if it's okay, if you like to dig into your process a little bit, um, our, our listeners love, uh, love, to, love to hear about process. And I know that your desk faces a blank wall. Can you tell us why you made that decision? It does. Although actually, um, I do have a little window now. My desk, when I first set it up um, in a previous house, faced a blank wall. But I now have the corner of a window, but the window faces a, another blank wall of trees. So it's just literally a wall of green, um, which is even better because it it's it's inspiring in the sense of I can look out, I can feel I'm in nature, I can get some daylight, uh, but there's nothing too interesting out there to distract me. As we've already established, I'm someone who's very willing to find distraction uh, from my work. Um, so I think having a situation where the pictures in my head are more interesting than the ones out the window is the ideal because it forces you to go inside rather than outside. I really appreciate that. I, I think we share a love of trees. I, I would just sit under a tree all day if, if I if I had no other responsibilities with well, a book, maybe, maybe not. Probably be very bad for your back, though, if you're on your laptop, <laughs> you'd be kind of hunched over, which is the other. Actually, this is the other big take home. I used to write on on the sofa or in bed, which was my favorite place to write. Um, and it's something I still love to do. But um, it really knackered my back um, to the extent that I now only keep my work in progress on my desktop computer, which is a proper desk with a proper desk chair, everything set up with the monitor at the right height. Um, and it really forces me to treat my body with respect. And I think it's probably saved my back. <laughs> What does your uh, what does your daily process look like? Are, are you writing at a certain time of the day and at, at this desk that you've mentioned a uh, certain way? Um, I mean, my daily routine is kind of bookended by my kids, really, um, who are. Uh, teenagers now so they don't need me to run around after them quite as much um, but I can't I find it very difficult to write when there's other people in the house and that it's not just my kids that goes for anybody I don't really even like it when like you know there's workmen in or anything like that um, so my kids go off to school um, I sit down at the desk usually about nine o'clock as we've established, I normally do a certain amount of faffing unless I'm really up against a deadline, um, which I'm being slightly um, deprecating about. But actually, a lot of it is quite important stuff. You know, effectively, as writers, we're running a small business, you know, whether we think of it like that, HMRC or, you know, the Inland Revenue certainly does. Um, so, you know, there's record keeping, there's tax records, there's talking to accountants and bookkeeping and all the kind of really boring stuff that just comes with being a self-employed business person. So, yeah, a lot of my so-called faffing is, is actually stuff like that. Um, but then about about 10 or 11 I'll I'll actually get down to the writing and I'll aim to do like a couple of solid hours um, if things are going well I often find I've written all the way through lunch and I'll suddenly look up and realize it's three o'clock and my kids are about to come home and I haven't had any food um, that's a really good day obviously um, 
other times it would be a question of just forcing myself to keep going back, you know, keep grinding the words out. Sometimes writing's really fun, but sometimes it is like getting blood out of a stone. Um, and the funny thing is, some of my books that have been the hardest to write in that respect, in that every paragraph has felt like a mechanical struggle, um, have been the most popular. So I don't think, I used to think that if I was finding it hard to write a paragraph, it would be hard to read. And I now don't think that is actually the case, which is reassuring. And I think that hope is reassuring for anybody who is struggling with their own writing. It's very difficult to tell. You can sometimes tell that you've written a really cracking scene if you're really pleased with it at the end. But if you're if you're finding the writing very hard and you're having to just chisel away and chisel away and it feels like kind of knocking tiny bits of granite off a huge boulder, I don't think that's necessarily reflective of how the reader will experience it. So so it sounds like you're committing yourself to to butt in chair as opposed to words or pages per day. Um, definitely not. Yeah, well, not so no, I don't count words or pages. I don't think that's a good way to measure progress um, because I think it makes you focus on the wrong thing, which is just getting words out. Um, and actually, I think it it can be as good a day's work to delete 500 rubbish words as it is to write 500 rubbish words um I just I I feel I've had a good day's work if my book has ended up at the end of it closer to what I feel it should be um there's that kind of funny anecdote I no idea where it came from but you know it's about the guy who wants to become a master craftsman and he goes to someone who um is uh he's famous for carving ducks and um the guy puts him through all these tests which I won't you know go through it's like it's a, it's a shaggy dog story where it kind of keeps going and um at the end of it he comes to me and says yes my son you are ready to learn how to carve the duck he says you take a piece of wood and you take away everything that is not a duck this <laughs> <laughs> guy's like great okay but I do think that writing a book is very like that in that sometimes it's about adding sometimes it's about taking away but I hope that my duck feels more like a duck at the end of the day than it did at the beginning and if it does I feel pleased <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the I love the duck anecdote. I'm, I'm going to definitely have to look that up for sure. Uh, what about your revision process? Is that is it the the same as your drafting process? Pretty much in in terms of how you structure it. Um. Well, I, I know a lot of people subscribe to the idea of a, a crappy first draft. The idea of just getting something rough and dirty out, and then you go back and tidy it up that doesn't really work for me. If I'm not happy with a chapter, I kind of can't move on. I sort of have to keep gnawing away at it. And um, I think more as well, if I'm not happy with the direction, um, I sort of feel that writing sometimes is a bit like hacking a path through the wilderness. And if you take a wrong turn, you can end up going very, very wrong. Um, so I tend to want to feel like my path is in a right, the right direction that I'm things are going okay before I proceed because I think sometimes especially in writing crime where the the shape of the plot is very important the resolution is very important if you go too far of course it can be very very difficult to edit that back 
Um, so I tend to, to sort of edit and try to look at the shape of the book as I go on along. And that will sometimes mean going back and changing things about the first two thirds or wherever I am, um, seeding stuff in, adding clues, adding little breadcrumbs for the reader. Um, I would say when I write the final chapter of a book, it's usually like there will be very little tidying up to do at that point. There'll be a week or so where I read it through and change things. And I often have like a little shopping list at the bottom of my manuscript where I know that there's stuff I've got to go back and add. Um, but it's not generally big stuff. If, it, if it's something big and significant, I usually go back and do it as I go along because I, I don't feel the book. I don't feel I can move on until that's right. Um, so normally, uh, I will be set pressing send to my editor pretty quickly after I've written that final chapter. Um, but that's not to say that every chapter is right first time. I do edit, I go over, I change things, I revise. It's just I sort of do it more as I as I go along. And that's definitely not a process that works for everybody. I know lots of writer colleagues who say if they worked like that, they would just endlessly get caught up revising and revising the first chapter. So I think. It, people just need to find out what works for them and and figure out their method and that's my method <laughs> are you outlining or plotting anything ahead of time um not really I don't write an outline um I do know who did it almost always and how and usually why and I think for the way I write anyway that's pretty essential for crime because it's very very difficult to give the reader sufficient clues to solve the mystery um, if, you, if you don't know the solution yourself at the beginning. Um, other than that, I often have a few scenes that I know I want to include. Normally when an idea comes to me uh, for a plot, it's with a few sort of, I think of them as set pieces in my mind, like, you know, the cool scene in a movie that you would remember afterwards. It's often with those in my head like the scene that would end up in the trailer a snippet of that kind of thing um uh, and then it's often a question of finding out where those scenes and those set pieces will end up in the book um and that can be quite organic as I'm writing I'll sort of be working towards something and shifting it forward and back um but no I don't I don't sit down and, and write anything down I don't really believe in making notes I sort of think of my memory as a kind of natural triage system in that if I think if an idea is good it will stay with me and if I forget it it's probably because it deserved to be forgotten <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh trailer that's that's a good uh, segue into film adaptations which you have several in in the works uh, do you have any updates on any of those Sadly, no, I I don't get given very much information at all. And the information that I do get given, I very rarely understand. People <laughs> constantly being told that, you know, so it's, it's had a treatment, like a treatment. What does that mean? It's like a medical treatment. Um, so the more I find out about film, the more I realise what a very foreign country it is to me. Um, so who knows? I, they could be in cinemas next week. I feel like I would have been told if that was the case, but... <laughs> Fair enough. You're st staying in your lane and, and focusing on, on what you're good at. I can Very appreciate it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a fun way we can wrap up the conversation is uh, there, there's been a lot of changes in, in publishing in the world over the past few years. I would love to know, uh, Ruth, what are you excited about in the near future? 
Oh, in my future. Well, I guess in my immediate future, the thing that I'm most excited about is um, I'm about to do a, a US tour again. Um, I've only ever done one, which was for the death of Mrs. Westaway. Um, and then I was supposed to go back to America um, for one by one, but then we had COVID. So that kind of, <laughs> so it's a really long time since I've been on the road. Um, and I think one of the lovely things that came out of all of us being locked down uh, was the realization that events didn't just have to be people in a room that they could be done on zoom or you know it generally just I think gave a whole tranche of people who hadn't been able to access bookshop events um, an ability to dial in and be in a you know a room with an author which is great so I hope we keep lots of that but I've definitely definitely been missing um yeah the kind of the the fun of of meeting readers one-on-one um beyond that gosh the future of publishing I mean who knows I think people are always predicting the death of the novel or you know ebooks appeared and that was supposed to destroy the printed book I tend to think that us readers are we we're pretty fond of books they've been around for a few thousand years I don't think they're going anywhere soon so I think we'll keep telling stories and keep reading books in one format or another all right so first thing I want to do is I want to thank Ruth because Ruth has now um giving me an out whenever you make fun of me about there being nothing on my walls I can just (laughs) say hey Ruth Ware doesn't have it either because it helps her with inspiration she doesn't have a bunch of distractions around well I have that in my whole house (laughs) I, I get it. Like I'm in an office. I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven windows around me. And I'm constantly, if I look up from my Mac, there is something going on out in the, the street. One of my neighbors mowing the lawn, a bird, you know, like a squirrel. It doesn't matter what it is. It, it catches my eye. Um, Stephen King talked about this at one point. He, you know, he's got this big house up in Bangor. I, I think he actually like knocked down a couple of his neighbor's homes and like just expanded his house over the years. But at one point he built like a giant writing room, um, bought a big old desk and put it in the middle. Um, and he sat down and started working and like he just he couldn't deal with it like that and he ended up buying a smaller desk and just shoved it in the corner you know so he was facing that wall for for that exact reason you know like i i've been actually thinking about putting some blinds in here just so that i could close it all out and just kind of encapsulate myself because prior to this house every office that i've ever had that i've written in um didn't have windows um and and i know that it impacts my productivity you know like i everything catches my eye and it you know takes me out of whatever i'm doing yeah, I, uh, I'm the same way. Like up here, I have blinds and I keep them closed when I'm working. And uh, I've actually been working downstairs a lot more um, at, at my kitchen table. And I've kind of found I have to keep those blinds closed as well. So because I can see like the back of the townhomes behind me. And sometimes people have their windows open. And like this, there's people who live right behind me that have a cat I can see in their windows. So it's like I get I get I get super distracted. But um, but yeah, there was she um, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of really, really good stuff. This interview really rung true with me on a lot of things because I just um, a lot of the stuff she's talked about around productivity in this interview really, uh, really stuck with me because it's a lot of uh, different things I've been thinking about. But I'm curious, like, what were some of your big takeaways? I, I love that she brought up that her productivity dropped when she became a full-time writer. Yeah. Um, that I, was I one noticed, of the big things for me I just mentioned. Yeah, I noticed it in my myself, and I, and I do see it with other people that I've talked to about this. But, like, you know, in hindsight, I, I see it. But, like, at the time, I couldn't – I didn't really recognize what was happening. Uh, but essentially, you know, if you're working a full-time job, and, like, at the time, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week and trying to squeeze out about 300 words a day, um, I would, you know, basically do what she was saying. I would think about the story, you know, while I was actually doing my real job. 
Um, and then when I sat down to actually write, you know, I can hammer out those words pretty easily. Um, I think what also ends up happening is, you're, you know, you're, most authors, I think, are only capable of so many words per day. And yes. I think everybody kind of hits a limit. Um, I mean, for me, it's like two to 3,000 words and that's it. And like, I can have a 5,000 word day, but I know the next day I'm going to take two to 3,000 of those out. You know, they, they just, they're going to suck. Um, so I think you you can only get so much out of each person. And even though you're, you've got your butt in that chair for, for more hours, you know, it doesn't change the fact that you've only got X number of words in you. Um, so I think that kind of plays true a little bit too. Is that what you noticed? Yeah, absolutely. It took me a long time too to realize that there is absolutely a paradox with that. Um, and, and, and I, I love the way she framed it about, she looked at it as like, I only have so much creativity I can squeeze out, which is kind of the same thing as what you're saying. Um, I can't tell you how many authors I talked to. And, and I was honestly the same way who basically just do the math and they're like, wow, if I'm only getting to write two hours a day and I'm writing 1500 words, if I write eight hours a day, I'll be able to, you know, and, and it doesn't work like that. Like, um, I would, I would almost comfortably say that there were a lot of days when I was working a full-time job where I wrote more than I do now. And I think another thing that came into play was, um, time constrictions. I knew because of that full-time job that I only had, like I had to get my butt up in the morning and get in that chair and write because I had to go to work and I wasn't gonna be able to write once I did that. So I think this time, same thing, I'd go on my lunch break, I knew I had an hour to sit in the backseat of my car and write. So I think that those constraints as well, as opposed to like, you know, it's easy to wake up and start a little bit later and stuff, you know, on days, you know, there's most days I'm pretty good about getting right down the desk, but still, you, I still have that mental block in the back of my head where it's like, I don't know. And, and, and I feel like I still get the words out and I'm, you know, I can still get mostly usually the same I used to, but it takes a little, it can take a little bit longer. Um, and, and what she said about the creativity part really made me think about that. Like maybe that's what's really going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I purposely structured my day in a way where I could deal with other things because one of the other things nobody ever tells you is that you know your your time starts getting like everybody needs a piece of you for something. Um, like I've got four phone calls scheduled today aside from yeah. everything else, um, you know. So I always make sure I get my words first, and then like if I've got a, I use Acuity um, scheduling for for my my calendar. So like anybody that wants to book me, I've only got certain hours that are available, and I, I basically block out anything before 11 a.m. as just strictly writing time. Um, I just had to make sure I do that because I didn't do that initially. And, you know, I just it kept cutting in. You know, my editor would call me. My agent would call me. You know, I'd have a pitch call or I'd have to do this, have to do that. It didn't matter what it was, but like it was just kind of breaking up the writing day. Um, and I just I wasn't getting it done. So I, that was one of the things that I had to do. Um, I, I like that she mentioned that she needs, I think she called it subconscious time to work out her plot issues. And, and that's kind of what we're getting at too. You know, like when you've got the full-time job, you know, you can be doing your job and your brain can be working that story. Um, very similar, like when I go on a run, like my brain is working that story that, you know, for what I'm going to write the next day, like I need to have that downtime. And it sounds like she does too. Um, you can't just take the book and put it out of your head and sit down the next day and, and hope to just, you know, kick off running. Um, it just, it doesn't happen, at least not for me and most of the people that I've talked to. Yeah, I, uh, it's me and, um, and, and, and Tyler, uh, T.W. Piperbrook, who's here, uh, we, we were talking about that because he, that's kind of part of his schedule every day is he, got, he takes plot walks. Like he'll get up and write some and then he'll get away and he, he lives, he lives, uh, up in Connecticut, um, and, and will you know, has a really pretty area near him where he goes and takes plot walks and stuff. And, um, I try to do that as much as possible too, because it really does help just to get out. Like I won't take my headphones, nothing. I mean, if I can help it, I won't even take my phone with me. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and we'll try to do that sort of thing. And, um, kind of similarly, I guess, kind of sort of, there's, there's one other thing that I love that she said, because I do this same thing and some people think I'm crazy. Um, but I love how she said she doesn't write down her ideas. Cause I don't do that either. Um, her whole, her, her whole thing is if I forget it, it wasn't worth coming back to. And, and I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, it, now on, on the flip side, I will say like, I did do that for a while and it is kind of recently I found a file where I did write down a bunch of ideas and it was kind of interesting to go back to that. But I have definitely, I definitely subscribed to what she said. Where like, if, if there's something that is, is worth writing, I'm not going to be able to not think about it. So it's not going to go away. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, I don't know if I approach it like a, a normal person does because as, as an Aspie, like when I get an idea in my head, like I have to, like it stays in my head and I can't forget it until I put it down on paper. Like it's almost like a task that I can check off. Um, so like I can't stop thinking about it until I actually put it down on paper. Um, I, I read a book um, about Albert Einstein when I was a kid and um, he was a big proponent of, of writing everything down that you possibly could. Like he wore the same outfit basically every day, you know, like he had five or 10 versions of the same suit um, just so he wouldn't have to spend any brain power thinking about what he was going to wear. Um, you know, so like he basically tried to eliminate everything from his brain that could be eliminated other than whatever he was actually working on, you know, from a major standpoint. Um, so I, I guess in a lot of ways I try to do that. Um, but I, I do like to write everything down. I mean, I've got simple no documents, not only for the book that I'm working on, but also for all my other book ideas. Um, and it, you know, it just helps me keep it all organized. And, and there is things that I do forget. Um, and I, you know, I'll be reminded of them when I go back and look at that document and, you know, I, I think they're good, you know, like I, but I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, you know, again, this is another King thing. Like he's brought this up a million times. He doesn't write that kind of stuff down either. You know, if he forgets it, he figures that it's not worth, not worth holding on to. And there's a lot to be said about that for sure. Yeah, it can be a little scary. I mean, like, for sure. I mean, I've definitely forgotten some stuff before, but you just, uh, yeah, you just kind of have to let that go. Um, and, uh, you know, her, I, I tell you another thing, um, and, and this kind of goes to you knowing yourself and knowing that you have to write stuff down. It was, you know, hearing her, um, her, her process with editing and stuff and how she can't move on until the chapter's perfect, that it goes back to knowing yourself. I mean, she even sounded in the interview like she was almost – a little weird saying that, like, I know this is what you're supposed to do, but it's not what I do. But I think that comes back to something that we keep learning over and over again. The more these interviews are done, the more shows we do is there's no one or right way to do any of this. Like you have to know yourself and you have to try different things and find what works for you. Yeah. Everybody's totally different. Um, I, I loved when she said that deleting 500 rubbish words is just as productive as writing 500 new ones. Like yes. that, that needs to be on a coffee mug on my desk. It, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was sitting here trying to remember something she said that I want to talk about. And that again, I don't take notes. So um, <laughs> again, that was, that was one. I loved that because that is another mindset thing that I have worked really hard to try to get out of. Like there's such a mindset and, and I think it's all writers, but I definitely see it in the, the indie world with the whole, like you have to publish a lot of books. You have to publish fast. People get so obsessed with word counts and that just overwhelms and stresses me out. And it took me a long time to get over that. And what she said is right. What does it matter how many words you're writing if they're crappy words? Like sometimes you have to admit to yourself that sometimes you're going to have those days where it is way more beneficial for you to go in and have a negative word count than it is for you to have a positive one. And that was so reinforcing for me to hear her say that. And I agree. I want If there is one thing I want to put on my wall, it's that. 
Well, I, I do something really weird in, in Scrivener when I'm writing. So you know, I use the word count thing, and I, I, mm-hmm. I basically try to make sure I get at least 2,000. Like, that's my bottom line number every day. Um, but one of the things I learned early on is when you do that, you know, that then if you go in and you delete, you know, 500 words, you know, like it feels like you're you're backstepping, like you're backpedaling. Like now, now all of a sudden you've got to write 2,500 words just to get caught back up. Um, so you tend to leave a lot of garbage in there just knowing that it's keeping your word count where it needed to be, or at least that's what I did. Um, so what I've done for years is I, I, in my chapter or whatever I'm currently writing, I draw a line down at the very bottom of it. And if I delete something, I just cut it from the, the actual text I'm writing and I stick it below that line. Um, so my word count doesn't actually drop. Um, so I know every day I'm writing at least 2000 fresh new words and I may have taken out 700 words that they're still in the document, but they're below that line. Um, and then when I go through to do my, my, my next pass, I delete everything that's in there to figure out where my real word count is. But it makes me feel like I'm moving forward no matter what. Um, and sometimes I do find the things that I delete, you know, I go back and I'll mine some of that data. So it's nice to, to, to still have it like right there and visible. You know, there's a box you can check that will not count. It, it'll only count yeah, positive words. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. know. And I've, and I've tried that, but I, I do like, like, for me, I like to have it down there. Like I like to be able to see it because um, sometimes I do go back to it because uh, a lot of times I'll second guess myself. I'll, you know, I'll write a scene and, you know, it, it, it's OK, but like I'll go back and I'm like, well, maybe I'll do it this way. and It's going to be a thousand times better and I'll rewrite it. And the first time around was better than the second time around. And I like to be able to, to quickly change back. So I, I do both. Again, you're that's your system. Everybody yeah, yeah, does things. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's just our brains all work differently. So. Yeah, she brought up something else that I thought was was really important. Um, when, a lot of times when she's writing and she has a paragraph that's very difficult to get out or a page or a chapter, um, it, she finds that when she goes back and reads it, like that's some of the best writing. You know, like it was very difficult to put it together. It felt, you know, like hard as you were writing it as if it wasn't working. Um, I run into that all the time. You know, like I'll have a rough day at work, you know, like I'm not getting the word counter. It feels like every sentence is a struggle. But then the next day when I go back and look at it, that's some of the best stuff in the book. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people get discouraged by it and I don't know if it's because they're not going back rereading it. Um, but I think you, you really need to try and look at that as a reader as, as well as, as the writer, um, just because it's taking you a while to, to, you know, squeeze blood from that rock. Like she said, um, yeah. you know, sometimes it's worthwhile. Writing's hard. It's Writing's not hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not always a thing where you can sit down and in 30 minutes, put out 1500 words. I mean, there's going to be times where you do hit those and you just have to bowl through it. And like you said, you can come back to it. You can fix any of it. You can come back and edit your words. You know, they're just words, uh, as as Jay Thorne would say. So. <laughs> she also brought she brought up so many good things. Um, the, she the, did. This was a great, great talk. Yeah. Yeah. The, the film trailer idea, like I never really thought about it, but, you know, like as somebody who, you know, just plots out you know, just a few pieces of the story, beginning, middle, end, a couple things in the middle, it really does play out like a film trailer. Um, yep. You know, if, if you look at it that way, I never, never thought of it, but um, yeah, she, she was awesome. Yeah, it was it was great. Like I said, this uh, this interview really resonated with me, and just a lot of things I've been thought thinking about for a long time, and it kind of it, it really reinforced for me, you know, some different mindset things, and uh, and and it, it was awesome. So it was it was really good to hear hear uh, hear a different perspective, and and like I said, reinforced some things for me. So uh, yeah, so great great interview, Ruth. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, JD, who do we have up next week? Next week, we've got Wanda Morris coming on. She's a former attorney turned writer. Her debut novel, All Her Little Secrets, garnered glowing reviews. Uh, It was named one of the best books of 2021. She's back with her latest, Anywhere You Run, which releases October 25th. Awesome. Definitely looking forward to that one. So, all right. So if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. 
We'll see you next week and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.